All right, I get the pleasure of introducing our guest speaker this morning. So I don't know how many of you guys know Kwame and Kim. You guys raise your hands here in the front. So they've been coming to Blue Ocean for a few years. Yeah, Kwame's been on our board. Um, Kim has her PhD in child development and has just started teaching Sunday school as a few months ago. But we were having dinner and I just thought, I wonder, I bet Kim's a good speaker. And so I asked her to speak and she was like, yeah, actually I think I would have something to say. And so I'm really, really looking forward to having her. And I'm just gonna kind of read the bio, which I hope that's not too embarrassing for you, but just so I make sure that I get it right here. Okay, Kim has spent the last two decades focused on children and families in her work, from academia to working in large urban school districts and national nonprofit organizations. She's currently the Executive Vice President for Youth Program Quality at the Forum for Youth Investment, a national nonprofit working to create a world where all young people can reach their fullest potential in education, work, and life. She and Kwame have a chosen family with their 26-year-old daughter, Christina, and two-year-old granddaughter, Troy. They are also Titi and Tio, which I don't speak, I speak four languages, but not Spanish. So I think that's auntie and uncle, right? Okay, to two nibblings, Evelyn and Cole, who are also here today, I believe, to see their aunt come and speak. So without further ado, let's, in, let's welcome Kim as she shares with us this morning. The things you agree to at a dinner party. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I'm excited to be here. I, I may have replied to uh, Emily by email the next day and I said, I think I have a working title. Yeah. <laughs> and how are the children? And so we're gonna go with that. Yeah. The Maasai people who are indigenous to Eastern Africa and known as mighty warriors have a traditional greeting uh, that means, and how are the children? And the traditional response that is that anyone would say, whether you have children or not, is, and all of the children are well. So the idea of this greeting really reflects the value of the significance of children in their culture and the wisdom that our collective well-being should focus not only on the here and now, but on future generations. All the children are well means that life is good and that the daily struggles of the community do not preclude properly taking care of the young, not just within an individual family, but for the community as a whole. As a person who studies child development for a living, I fundamentally believe that a community and a culture cannot flourish without intentionally and proactively caring for children, those who are very often the most vulnerable among us. And as a person of faith, I believe that this is a similar question and a similar orientation to what Jesus describes as the kingdom of God or God's good realm. In Matthew 19, Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belong the kingdom of God. He also says in Matthew 25, that those who inherit the kingdom of God are those who feed the hungry, who give drink to the thirsty, who welcome the stranger, clothe the naked, visit those who are sick and in prison. In other words, those who think of and care for the most vulnerable are those who are bringing about God's good realm. Amen. And in James 2, we're encouraged, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be 
rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Unless we think that this kingdom view is something that is far off in the future world, um, the words that we pray every week in the Lord's Prayer remind us that we are praying for the kingdom to be here on earth as it is in heaven. And to me, this description of the kingdom of God, which we pray for to be a reality on earth, and uh, are also a way of reflecting indigenous wisdom and knowledge uh, that the Messiah offer in their greeting. And how are the children? All the children are well. According to this indigenous wisdom, all parts of the natural world are connected. Nothing is alone, nothing is in isolation, nothing exists apart from its relationship to all of the other pieces. In the book Braiding Sweetgrass, Robin Wall Kimmerer explains um, this orientation of things being in continual relationship with the world and with the natural environment. And so our responsibility is to care for the natural, uh, our responsibility to care for the natural world is also an ex- part of our, ex- our responsibility of caring for our children. The seventh generation principle of the Iroquois nation puts this in another way, that, that we should make decisions based on how they will impact people seven generations into the future. So we're thinking not only about how our decisions impact us today, but the future and for generations to come. And this interconnected or kinship-based understanding of the world is also reflected in what the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. described as the beloved community. The vision of the beloved community was not a lofty or utopian goal meant to be, you know, in heaven with angels and lions and lambs and all of those things, but instead it was a realistic and achievable goal that could be attained by a critical mass of people committed to nonviolence, committed to collective flourishing. In the beloved community, poverty, hunger, and homelessness would not be tolerated because collective standards of decency and justice wouldn't allow it. In the beloved community, racism and oppression would be replaced by love and justice, in systems and in relationships. In the beloved community, international disputes would be resolved by peaceful conflict resolution instead of military power. The call for ceasefire would be obvious in the beloved community. Love and trust will triumph over fear and hatred. Peace with justice would triumph over military conflict. This vision of beloved community, of generational sustainability and thriving, of all the children being well, is in contrast to so much of our world today. White American culture, and typically white American Christian culture, as so focused on individualism and exceptionalism. We tend to see our relationship with God as primarily personal. We tend to see the care of children as primarily the domain of individual parents or maybe an extended family. And this narrow view has consequences for us individually and collectively. Individually, the expectations that are placed on parents and particularly on mothers are often heavy and unrelenting. In a recent study from, dare I say, the Ohio State University, (laughs) researchers conducted an online survey of parents who had children under the age of 18 living at home. 
um, and two-thirds of parents reported experiencing burnout or those feelings of being so overwhelmed that it inhibits their ability to function and cope. And we've also seen the ways that parents' concern for their individual children can have, make them lose sight of fairness and decency for the, for the whole. Think back a couple of years to the college admissions scandal where wealthy and often famous people were bribing their way to have their children have, gain access to prestigious universities rather than earning their way in. And in our current landscape, where affirmative action that would benefit black, indigenous, Hispanic, and other people of color has been outlawed, the affirmative action for wealthy families under the guise of legacy admissions is still alive and well in most places. And collectively, despite the U.S. being among the world's wealthiest nations, our children fare more poorly on many indicators of well-being compared to children in other countries around the world. And even closer to home, we know that opportunity is not equally distributed across our communities. Researchers at Brandeis University have created a data platform, so cool, called diversitydatakids.org. Check it out. Um, have looked at places in the U.S. where there are extreme levels of opportunity and disadvantage in close proximity to one another. And they found that the Detroit metro area is one of the most extreme examples that exist in the entire country. In Detroit, the typical low opportunity neighborhood has an opportunity score of two, and the typical high-opportunity neighborhood has an opportunity score of 95 on a scale of 0 to 100. And of course, this opportunity is disproportionately disadvantaging black and brown children. And so I wonder if a more connected view, a view that values indigenous wisdom, that envisions the beloved community to which God invites us to experience on earth as it is in heaven, can help us consider our individual and collective responsibilities to ensure that all the children are well. I can dry. Yeah, <laughs> a couple of years ago, I co-edited a book called It Takes an Ecosystem, Understanding the People, Places, and Possibilities that Support Learning and Development Across Settings. Mouthful. I always forget what the last part of it even is. You might have guessed the name It Takes an Ecosystem borrows from the phrase It Takes a Village. If you think about a natural ecosystem, um, I always think back to like in elementary school, those pictures of an ecosystem where there's like a stream and some trees and the sun and there's some animals and like you sort of get the sense that like a healthy natural ecosystem involves all of these different things operating in relationship to one another with some kind of balance. And so it's all the interconnected elements in an ecosystem that make the physical world thrive. An ecosystem that supports young people is our village, but that we actively can manage and support and cultivate to make sure that, our, uh, that young people have what they need to thrive. An ecosystem approach can help us think about the institutions that we're a part of and, 
and how they do or do not serve those young people who are most in need. I would say the kingdom of God is like an ecosystem, one built on community and collective care. And I want to share three different principles of ecosystems that can help offer a broader vision for a community where all the children are well. First, thinking back to that picture, uh, ecosystem picture from school with the, all the different you know, parts of the natural world um, existing in balance with one another, there's no one element that is at the middle of that. In contrast, a lot of theories of child development place the child in the center, sort of like there's all these pictures that look like a bullseye, with the kid right in the middle. Um, and in an ecosystem view, children should neither be at the very center nor at the margins, but should be in right balance and relationship to the other elements. Um, children and young people, just like people in every developmental age, um, stage of life, are critical to the thriving of our community. Um, but, but I think we sometimes have, uh, get out of balance when we either over-focus or under-focus on children. Um, and as we think about our responsibilities toward children, training up a child is as much about what we learn from them as about what they learn from us um, and what we hope for them. I know that as a Sunday school teacher and as a TT, um, hearing how kids think so often challenges me to think differently. Rather than our hierarchical and oppressive uh, relationships between adults and children, what if we had a different orientation? And placing children at the center also has all kinds of unintended consequences, individually and collectively. Individually, I already talked about the, um, the extreme levels of stress that parents are experiencing, um, often alone um, or feeling, feeling very much alone. Um, but collectively, we often blame children for what we see as their shortcomings. Uh, we do this when we, um, it, and in, instead what we should do is understand the failings of the system that we've created. So we do this when we say, judge the, the quality of a school by the reading levels of the students or the graduation levels of the students, rather than actually considering where those children started and what they gained as a result of being in the school. The children themselves have nothing wrong with them. It's the supports that we provide. And as we've already heard, we concentrate advantage and we concentrate disadvantage so that we don't all have the same opportunity to thrive. And so a shift of perspective that we uh, need to build an ecosystem um, that ensures that children are healthy but doesn't put them at the middle of everything, for better or for worse, also makes room for a wider range of families in our community. I know um, in many church contexts, uh, before I met Kwame, uh, being this, a single woman you know, in church, it was like, I didn't quite fit in a lot of church communities. That's why I resisted children's ministry <laughs> until I got here. I will, I will only be a Sunday school teacher in a place that I can also stand here and speak to all of the adults as well. It really changed my perspective. Um, but 
thinking about sort of the value of all of the families, all of the individuals, all of the expressions of community, and how we can cultivate that together collectively in our community. And I believe a healthy kingdom view makes room for all of these different kinds of possibilities. So the second principle about um, ecosystems is about complexity. Uh, which is a little bit nerdy, but I love this part. Um, <laughs> ecosystems are complex, but they're not complicated. So things that are complicated are things that, problems that can be solved with careful planning and repetition. So like planning a seating chart at a wedding, complicated. <laughs> Figuring out who should talk to who, that's very tricky. Um, Untangling a knot in the yarn when you're crocheting is complicated and frustrating. Um, but it's something, if you stick with it, you can just keep, you know, keep at it and figure it out. Um, but things that are complex are dynamic, and the solutions are in constant need of adjustment. So the answer of how we best support our children today is not going to be the same answer of what we need to do in the future, and it's always changing, and it's always shifting. And so tending to our community is complex, um, like an ecosystem, like visioning and working towards the beloved community where all the children are well. In my work, we describe the aim of positive youth development is for young people to feel safe and supported, to learn and to lead. And so with the last principle, I'll talk a little bit about how we can make that happen. The third principle of ecosystems is the health principle. An ecosystem can be healthy or unhealthy, and so we can tend to the health of the system um, to, to, better support, um, to better support outcomes. And just like there's known ways to support our physical health, um, there's known ways for caring for the natural world, we also know ways that we can care for, for children and young people. Uh, one critical way of tending to the health of the ecosystem is by, by paying attention to the health of our relationships. You can think of relationships as the fuel that powers everything that happens from the relationships with children to the relationships among adults, among those who hold, um, hold uh, roles of power and who are making decisions. Relationships are the thing that's making it all happen. Um, but in particular, relationships with children and youth can help them to feel a sense of safety and belonging and help them to cultivate their perspectives and develop their sense of agency in the world. Um, and these are relational skills that can be taught and practiced and improved upon over time. Um, and a couple of strategies just to give you an example of what this can look like that support young people. Um, one, provides structured opportunities for belonging. So things like icebreaker questions, which we're gonna do a little bit after church. Kids often have a lot of opportunities for this. Like classrooms are structured. When we go to, into children's ministry downstairs, we start with like games and fun things to like help pe welcome people into the space. Adults don't re rarely have those kinds of opportunities, but similar things are helpful for us as well. Um, and so they help get to know people and create a space that um, is safe and supportive for everyone to participate. But even within that, we want to provide choices. Um, even things like being able to, to choose whether or how to participate, um, or other things that are simple or obvious, like choosing your snack. That's a really, really big deal. Um, another um, strategy is providing opportunities for reflection. 
asking open-ended questions, uh, which is really hard to do, but is very, very useful, um, can help make connections and spark new ideas. So remember back to our online services during COVID and Diane would tell the children's story with the stuffed animals. I always loved those. Uh, but she would end each, each one with a bunch of open-ended um, questions or statements. She would say, I wonder what Joseph thought when all of this happened. You know, she would just sort of offer, a, I wonder how they, what they thought when this happened. And it allowed you to make a wide range of connections, um, rather than the question being like, how can you love God better today, right? Like something more open-ended. How did they feel? What do you think they might do next? Um, and so uh, those open-ended questions help um, provide opportunities to, to, for more possibilities. Um, and then finally, the opportunities for leadership, big and small no matter the age, providing opportunities for everyone to lead. Um, this might look different for different kids. Someone wants to read the story out loud. Someone wants to go first to share. Another wants to pass out the materials. Most of them want to pass out the materials. Um, it also looks like asking um, kids what they think, uh, taking their ideas seriously. Some of my most effective Sunday school lessons were planned in partnership with Evelyn and Cole. They had really wonderful ideas and they worked a lot better than what I was coming up with on my own. Um, and so all of these practices hinge on personal connections and building relational skills. Um, and so I have one more research project that I wanna mention that highlights the importance and value of um, what's possible when we invest in, in relationships with young people. Um, this, this study is the, called the Perry Preschool Project, um, which if you studied psychology, um, you may have heard about. Um, 60 years ago, down the street, at Perry Elementary School in Ypsilanti, Michigan, um, David Weikert started a study with, uh, Doug, with Charles Eugene Beattie, the principal at Perry Elementary School, who was the first black principal in the state of Michigan. Um, they wanted to see whether providing high-quality early childhood experiences in sort of a preschool setting could, provide, could really help kids get on track and do better in school. And at the time, in the 60s, they really didn't think, like pre-K wasn't a thing, preschool wasn't a thing. They really didn't think that it was worth it. His advisors at the University of Michigan said, why would you waste your time doing all this for little kids? They can't learn anything anyway. Like, why would they think that? But they did. And so he persisted. He did this study. 123 black children were enrolled in, this, um, in the study, and half of them um, received the opportunity to participate in this high-quality early childhood experience. It was very active and participatory. They got to play and learn by doing um, throughout that experience. Um, and they've continued to study these families since then. So they're now looking at the children of the people who were in the Perry Preschool Project. And there's not a lot of evidence of cognitive um, impacts. So like school, like test scores and grades didn't really, you know, they didn't really look any better off, uh, particularly in the short term. But as they've continued following these families over time, they've found that they were more likely to graduate from high school they were more likely to have um, higher paying jobs and more, um, more stable careers, more stable family lives. They had children at later ages and those children and their children have also um, 
have also had been less likely to be suspended in school. They've had higher levels of education and employment. And so, which I, I love, I love the study. I lead a center named for David Weikert, who was the guy who founded this, so I think about it a lot. Um, but the fact that, thinking back to the seven generations principle, making decisions today that will impact generations, a lot of those relational practices and the, the things that we do to support young people today, it might not show up in, you know, being better behaved tomorrow, but it might show up in their children having better opportunities in their lives. And so those are the kinds, of, um, the kinds of generational impacts that are literally possible. Um, so as I've been a Sunday school teacher over the last several months, I've really been enjoying getting to know our kids. Um, but I still don't know many of the parents. And, um, and I think that this is really common in, um, in educational settings that, you know, you, you spend time with kids, you know, you work at a camp, you work at a, a youth program, you work in a school, you know the kids but not the parents. And there's something that's deeply problematic with that. There's a colonizing mentality in this idea of we're going to take care of your kids and not connect with the families. Um, and there's a lot of judgment about which families care about making those connections and which, you know, and, and who doesn't. Um, and so I think that it's really critical as, as just a principle that people who are working with young people have to have relationships with the families as well. Um, and so, we, you know, we see each other week after week. We don't necessarily know each other. We're going to try to practice some of that here um, at, after church today. Um, a lot of us, I think a lot of us here are introverts, myself included. Um, and so, you know, mingling and chit-chatting after church isn't necessarily like the favorite thing. Um, but connections, um, um, you know, developing these connections and, and building our community and investing in that through these small interactions are the kinds of things that make these ripple effects across generations. Um, so as we wrap up the service, we're going to um, invite you to stay for an opportunity to build community um, after the service. And you can see there's some little stations set up around the room. Um, we want to create some structured opportunity uh, for adults to be able to make connections, just like we provide those kinds of structured opportunities for kids. Um, but before that, I want to close us with a brief meditation. Um, in my work, I've been inspired by the idea of freedom dreaming, which is a term coined by historian Robin D.G. Kelly to describe the power of imagination as a tool for liberation. We can't create a beloved community where all the children are well if we can't imagine what such a world could be like. So I'd like to invite us all to take a moment to see what dreams are sparked in our imaginations, and I'd like us to do that with a brief breath prayer. Uh, this is a prayer from Cole Arthur Riley, the creator of Black Liturgies on Instagram, whose book by the same name is coming out this week. Um, and when we, um, for this prayer, there's a phrase uh, that I'll say on the, as we inhale and a phrase on the exhale. And I have two different phrases, then we'll have just a little bit of silence, and I'll do that again at the end. So I invite you to close your eyes, get comfortable, whatever um, feels right for you. On the inhale, I'm held together. On the exhale, in safe company. On the inhale, 
I remember myself on the exhale in the arms of the collective. Just give you a moment. Inhale, I'm held together. Exhale, in safe company. Inhale, I remember myself. Exhale, in the arms of the collective. Thank you. All right, can we give her... Thank you so much. That was really fantastic. And I thought, you know, maybe I'll just offer just a moment before we do our candles. As someone who was single in churches also until I was 36, Rachel, Andrea, and I went through church for a long time together. It can sometimes feel a little bit hard to feel included with a lot of young families. And so I like this vision of like it takes an ecosystem, right? And I will say, um, and sometimes I can get a little teary if I say it, but like one of the joys of my job, having done this now for like more than 15 years, is the fact that I had some of your guys' kids in like the nursery back at my last place, and then to watch like Abby and Josie Middaw and the Nelson, get like Avery, and to watch, and Evie, bro, like watching them grow up and thrive is like one of the things that is like the biggest joy in my life. Derek, Annie, who's sitting right there. Um, so I hope we can see ourselves as part of that. It's so important, I think, for kids to have other people in their lives besides family, right, who are just like cheering for them, um, try and have the ones that want to, if they want to like come up and do stuff, like have safe spaces where they can like read and make mistakes and do things in places that are like, um, like shame-free, if that makes sense. So I hope all of you know how important I think it is um, for all of us to just be those safe sort of aunties and uncles to all of the kids here. So thank you, Kim. I think that was really beautiful. You can preach anytime you want.